Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best <laughs> horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is an incredible actor from movies like Days of Thunder, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, and the new movie Greenlight. Caroline Williams is here. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you so much. Happy to be here on Valentine's Day. Yeah, we're happy to have you as well. It's funny because you are, you're such an iconic part of horror history. And when I was watching Greenlight, uh, the character Sarah says that she took the job the main character meets her at to pay the bills. And this is not an unfamiliar story for a lot of actors. I mean, you look at Jennifer Aniston in Leprechaun or Renee Zellweger in Texas Chainsaw 4, but you've, man- you've managed to stay pretty true to your roots. And I'm, I was curious if that's because when you started, you were like, yeah, I think it would be fun to do horror stuff, or is this just kind of the opportunities that present themselves? At the time that I was hired, I had begun doing films in Texas My career accelerated unusually quickly. I was only about six, nine months into my acting classes. I had done some industrials and a couple of TV commercials, things like that. But mostly, I I was just kind of local. And I was hired for Louis Malle's Alamo Bay. You know, Louis Malle was this grand international filmmaker with an incredible reputation. And Amy Madigan and Ed Harris were the leads in the film. And so I launched at what I considered to be a pretty high level. And it wasn't until the offer for Chainsaw 2 in 86 that my career in horror began. Once I came to L.A., there was a heavy mix of television and film. But for the most part, once you've made a strong impression and a solid impression on horror fans, they want more. Felt like, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. I'll <laughs> Plus, I have to say, the quality of horror in the 80s, and there's a reason people have a romance with it, the quality of it was so extraordinary. The writing was great, character development, the artistry of special effects was at its, was approaching its peak then, and I cannot imagine a better time to have kicked off in the genre. It's such a great blessing and such a great gift. To- definitely agree with you in terms of horror really kind of hitting its stride then and and you mentioned the effects and and the boom of practical effects in the 80s is really spectacular and something that I think a lot of people look back fondly on with good reason. Do you do you have a favorite subgenre within horror? You know, the movie that we that I chose to discuss with you today is a is a bit of a subgenre. Horror was basically impermissible in the beginnings of the film business. It was suggestive, it was not obvious. You certainly didn't have slasher films. Um, Dracula, Frankenstein are the two films that most horror fans think of when they think of horror. But there was so much that was scary and subliminal within movies early in the film business. And it's part of the reason that I have that that era, that golden era from the 30s, I would say, through up to the 50s, everything was just much more suggestive. There were things you couldn't get away with, so you had to skirt around them. That's sort of a subgenre for me. It's more suspenseful, uh, certainly less obvious. Even leading up to Psycho, you know, the only blood you see in Psycho goes down the drain of the, of the bathtub. Once again, shot in black and white. In black and white, there's something so, I don't even know what word to use. It's very striking. It really is. The visuals of black and white cinema, there's an elegance. And you, as a viewer, you are at a remove to an extent from the images you're seeing because it's not the world you normally live in. But 
the the palette of blacks, grays, silvers, white is so extraordinary and it doesn't come fully to life for you until you see the photography of that era, a lot of which was very groundbreaking and certainly was completely groundbreaking in the movie M. So part of the reason I chose that film is it's a horror film without blood and generally without violence. In black and white movies, lighting becomes so much more integral because shadows have to do a lot of work in black and white movies in terms of creating the tone and everything. So you really get to pay attention to these aspects of film that maybe you don't necessarily pay quite as much attention to in a more modern day film. And I think that your point about being a little bit more removed from it because of the black and white is a really good one. And it definitely helps to really analyze the film and and really enjoy it. And I was surprised but thrilled at your pick because I was actually already a big fan of this movie, uh, the 1931 movie M, directed by Fritz Lang, thanks to a great film teacher I had in high school, Mr. Ross, who really helped to uh, expand my palette. And this is right around the advent of sound in movies. This is Lang's first movie with sound. He was also for directing the dystopian uh, Metropolis, one of the first feature-length sci-fi movies. So a lot of influence on on genre films. Um, Absolutely. The psychology of the film is so powerful because it is predicated on the murder of children. And that was largely, I mean, it was present in literature, um, like Grimm's fairy tales. It was sort of ordinary. Um, But at an adult entertainment level. You know, it's so discomforting. You don't even want to think about it. And one of the things I love the most about M is how the images and how the theme translate to 1935, James Wales Frankenstein. The two movies for me are closely interrelated because it's such a taboo. You're not supposed to kill children. It's ordinary now, but on the cover of any local newspaper, somebody has done something horrible to their children for a kid. But back then, that was that was taboo, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, to keep in mind, it's 1931. It's almost 100 years ago at this point. Things yeah. Certainly very different. And Fritz Lang really, he looms large, not just in genre films, as, as they're sometimes referred to, but he also looms large in the German Expressionist movement, which is, uh, it has a lot to do with, I think, kind of approaching these taboo subjects. Uh, It's an experimental anti-realism trend into which movies like Nosferatu, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and M all fall. And they're really fun. I really like this style a lot. It has a lot of emphasis on bizarre angles, especially in the architecture, these intense shadows, inner turmoil and over-expressiveness, which is kind of a holdover from the silent film era. Absolutely. And Peter Lorre, who's the star of this movie, I mean... Talk about expressiveness. This guy, his face is incredible. And during the part of the story where he is explaining himself, it is so contemporary of crime theory today. He is explaining, and and the thing is, he manages to do it. You can almost look at him in a sympathetic way. I am diseased. I have a disease. I have a sickness. You know, my sickness commands me, you know, it's very topical because, yeah, he almost has a childlike look himself with those gigantic eyes and that soft lisping voice. He almost seems to be a child himself. And that's one of the most chilling things of all for me. It's like, oh, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and once again, leaping four years into the future with the image of Frankenstein. I remember watching Frankenstein, the 1935 version, as a four-year-old. I was four years old. 
and sitting on the floor in our house. And I loved Frankenstein. I, I felt for him. I wanted to be his friend. I wanted to help him. I did not associate his, his killing the little girl. I didn't associate it. I thought the little girl fell in the water and Frankenstein was, went to rescue her. And the townspeople misunderstood. And, and Frankenstein is misunderstood. And so that, that is very present you know, within the context of my own mind. It's something really uh, valid to keep in mind, especially with Frankenstein. I mean, another talk about another movie that has withstood the test of time and still is incredible to go back and watch. A lot of the movies of that time are influenced a lot by this German Expressionist movement. I mean, not only did German Expressionism lead directly into film noir, but it also set up a whole generation of horror in the, in the Silver Age, thanks to German cinematographer uh, Carl Froon's work on Dracula, also in 1930. And I mean, these really artful, beautiful backgrounds that are, are super intense and such so integral to the atmosphere of these horror movies is directly tied to German Expressionism. So really uh, a lot of influence from these sort of movies. And one of the things that I would love to see a bit of a return to, and I think there is uh, to an extent, you see it starting to emerge, which is also the beauty of our genre. We have, we can move in so many different directions, but the artistry, like you said, of that era is so, it exists completely within its own time. It exists only there. And those visuals, the juxtaposition of something so profoundly frightening and the beauty of the, of the story as it unfolds on the screen, you know, it's a, it's a collision in your brain. And I think it's on its way. So, like we said, this stars Peter Lorre as Hans Becker. Peter Lorre actually wound up leading the rise of the Nazis to Hollywood and would go on to play roles in movies like Mad Love, Casablanca, and The Maltese Falcon. So he became pretty, pretty mm-hmm. famous. As well. um, and it's a pretty simple story. The movie is Berlin reacting to a serial killer. And I find it really interesting mm-hmm. that unlike most horror movies where we typically open up with a relaxed, serene environment that then escalates, M escalates from a point that's already further up the scale. When we open up on this, yes. we've already killed several children. Right. It, it starts off with a bunch of kids singing a song about him. And it's kind of in the vein of Ring Around the Rosie in that it's like a weird song about a creepy subject, a plague in that case, a murderer in this case, adapted into a game for children. And it's got this nihilistic morbidity that I really enjoy. And it is shocking to me that this sort of thing is in a 1931 movie. <laughs> well, you know, as, as a child myself, who's afraid of the big bad wolf, big bad wolf, big bad wolf, also singing about uh, Lizzie Borden. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. You know, I was a really young kid when I was singing songs like that. (laughs) You know, reading Grimm's fairy tales. They're grim, man. They're bloody and scary and people are getting chopped up and kids are getting eaten. And I think as a means of dealing with fear, you know, we try to turn it into something that's that's a little more digestible and approachable with songs and drawings and movies and, and stuff like that. Yeah, the children are already acknowledging in the at the beginning of the film. You know, the, he he murders that little girl way early on. Oh, yeah. She, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's not a long, drawn-out process. No, and it's it's done in a really interesting way as well, where the camera shows us like a wanted poster, 
and you're reading the sign about the killings for backstory and you just see the shadow of Becker fall across it and he leads uh, little Elsie Beckman down the primrose path and it's so well done. Oh, like, yeah. A lot of killers have a unique look, which Peter Lorre definitely does, and mm-hmm. some have non-diegetic themes that play in the score, but not too many have a, a song that this guy does with an on-screen source, which I really like. It's something that I wish would come back. He, his song is In the Halls of the Mountain King by Edvar Grieg, which people probably know even if they don't know that they know it. Do you have a song that you want people to be like, oh, here comes Caroline? <laughs> you know, I think Toby's theme and the other thing also that is so distinctive to horror so many directors are able to compose their own themes, and they're always composed of very simple combinations of one or two musical notes. And one of the things that I love about Halloween, John Carpenter's themes are always so consistently fantastic. And the same thing that Toby did with Chainsaw, Chainsaw 2, is having just that series of notes. Mm-hmm. Really great work. It's, it's very suggestive. Mm-hmm. You know, a theme for myself and not necessarily, but Pargunt in the Hall of the Mountain King. Very popular opera. Uh, I think it was adapted to a ballet as well. And a very appealing theme song to children, especially at that time. You know, the context of the whole film. You've got to remember that you're in a very distinctive place and time. And so many people today have such a limited education in history and, and historical truth. And the further your distance from that era, the less easy it is to understand where Germany was at that time. Fritz Lang was taking his life in his hands making a movie like this. The, the entire artistic and creative community in Germany was being dispersed. It was a great diaspora that was going to spread around the globe. But most of these brilliant artists were going to come to America. And so Germany's loss became our gain. But I think that's also a very important thing to understand. Hitler was not yet in power, but his National Socialist Party was. They were beginning to, you know, close that fist. Absolutely. A little bit. His next and, movie was even more overtly criticizing Nazis to the point where Joseph Goebbels wound up being like, hey, we are going to censor this movie and you can't release it, but you're welcome to be in charge of the Nazi party's film program. Propaganda. Yeah. And so he wound <laughs> exactly. up having to flee. Exactly. You know, that's how we got Eric von Strohheim as well. And of course, we got we got Peter Lorre as well. And you mentioned uh, The Maltese Falcon. I, I watched it again the other night on Turner Classics. And I was amazed at how contemporary the themes and how contemporary human behavior and human reaction to circumstances is. It's amazing to me. And with the movie M as well, it is still a very contemporary film. You know, people will will try to seek their own justice if they can. And I think that is somewhere in the nature of humankind. The exercise of restraint is is not one of our really great hallmarks, although, you know, we manage to do it a good portion of the time. The natural inclinations that societies have as groups endure. Um, and I mean, you mentioned about how there are some certain human elements that are are timeless that we see in this like that. And 
I think another one is how Lang communicates in this movie, how quickly paranoia and fear set in and can tear communities apart. I mean, a mob threatens an old man who just tells a child the time and they jump a man in police custody at the drop of a hat because they think that he's the killer. And this fear that just permeates the entire town is is incredible. And still, I think, like you said, very timely. Also, yes. I just want to say and that my personal theme song would probably be the 90s X-Men theme song. So shout out to my X-Men <laughs> fans out there. <laughs> you know, I feel like I, I would like to have a different theme song for every single movie I'm in. <laughs> there, very fair. That, and yeah. That's, um, that's a, that's a, you, you're, you're what likely to get it. So, you know, at least I can just have my phone, like play the, play the song behind me. <laughs> well, I mean, I do have 10 minutes to midnight coming up. It's beginning its festival tour. And uh, I'm very excited about the film because for the very first time since 1986, I go back to the DJ booth. Wow. Um, exactly. But with very, very different results. And <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a remarkably well-written and well-executed movie. Very, very proud of it. We've got a lot of contemporary goth metal music and rock and, you know, heavy rock and roll on our soundtrack. And I'm really excited about that. Cool. Yeah, I'll have to keep an eye out for it. It sounds great. Yeah. I You'll be seeing a lot of publicity related to that. Awesome. Like you also mentioned earlier about them, though, it's 1931. Sensibilities are different. You can't just show a child being murdered. <laughs> so the way that no. they get around it is really incredible how well they communicate what's happening in a tense way without actually showing you. We see the ball just roll away into a patch of grass, and the new balloon that he bought her is stuck up in some telephone wires. And you never actually see mm -hmm. that, but you know, and it's so powerful. Right. Reminiscent of the flowers floating on the water Absolutely. Uh, in Frankenstein. Can you recall a horror film or any film that actually shows a child being murdered? I don't <sighs> remember one. We'd probably um, have to Google and see if there is one. You know, there are still some some taboos, but I'm sure that it's, it won't be too long before someone pushes that boundary as well. Yeah, and that'll be freaky because, I mean, you know, when it comes to kids and animals, ah, uh, you know, you just, you, yeah, it, it you don't want to see it on another level. <laughs> completely, completely. Becker pulls kind of a Zodiac move before Zodiac of uh, writing to the presses because the police won't publish his remarks. And so this leads right. to increasingly desperate measures taken by the police. There's a really great montage intercut between a classic damn it, I need results argument between the minister and the chief of police. And it's interesting to see them emphasizing like new police techniques that were, were cutting edge at the time, like fingerprints and handwriting analysis where just kind of getting their time in the sun there. And they incorporate it into this in a really fun montage. Right. Like I mentioned, German Expressionism has a lot of influence on film noir. This movie is basically a progenitor of the police procedural. I mean, we see all the steps that the police are taking in their attempt to track down this killer. And it really, like I said, its influence can't be overstated. Exactly. And yet the underworld, because of the crackdown on illicit activity, decide to take matters into their own hands. Spoiling the police. Yeah, they say uh, this guy's giving us crooks a bad name. They, We're going to go get him, exactly. They have the homeless population of the city keep lookout so they can get this guy. But, you know, we see that the police actually are making some progress, finding Beckert's rented room and waiting for him. So it's really interesting to see both like wings of this kind of pincering around Beckert. 
and you kind of feel them yeah. coming in on it. Exactly. And and that is such a device of film noir. Mm-hmm. And my my second most favorite genre is noir. You know, it's just there's a style and a suspense level that that I love. It's, you know, literature on celluloid for me. Horror, like I said, there's so many different gradations and levels and, and different interpretations of horror, most of which, however, especially at the lower budget level, tend to go straight to slash and gore and give you a lot of blood and things like that. It is this uh, German neo-expressionism that you were talking about that makes the movie so attractive to me. Those layers of story and the character development. They manage to do it expeditiously and quickly, but largely through visuals. You know, getting to know the neighborhood where their little girl lives and uh, and where Becker goes to, to find his victims. So much of it is established just through establishing the uh, the location. I think a lot of that probably has to do with the fact that it did happen so shortly after silent films where you really had to use the visuals to tell the story um, unless you were just going to mm-hmm. go with the, uh, the frames in between where you would have the text. And so I think that the fact that this director was in the transitory period and he worked in both silent films and films with sound really allows him to utilize some of the skills that he had developed in the silent films to tell a visual story in pictures with sound. So I think that it's really a, a, a blessing for him that he wound up working at this time period because they wound up creating this incredible movie. And the the camera work that they do is still really modern seeming. There's a really cool transition where the camera just like pans up between the floors of the building and it would look completely normal in a movie today. Absolutely. Absolutely. With the difference being this was shot on film. And I understand that digital can replicate a lot of the look and feel of film, but there's something unmistakable about black and white film, that silvery, shimmering quality. There's just a romance to it that draws you so, it keeps its distance and yet it draws you in so completely. And it gives you the feeling of time. You know, I just, you can watch the entire movie without the sound, (laughs) like you said. (laughs) Definitely. And I think that people who um, write off movies from this time period as out of touch or out of date are are really doing themselves a disservice because there's some really incredible movies that can't be touched still to this day. I mean, a lot of these universal classics, even, you know, The Invisible Man, The Mummy, Dracula, Frankenstein, these movies are still so incredible and they still hold up and feel like a modern movie because there's so much artistry put into them. And so if you are like, oh, I don't I don't watch these movies just because they're old, I really implore you to go back and check them out. I, I, I think you can't have a thorough film education without starting at the beginning and seeing the uh, evolution over time and how the past informs the contemporary interpretation going forward. And I, I love how you mentioned noir because... I think Lang, when he came to America and was working within the studio system, he did do some noir films in the 40s. I mean, his contributions were really, really significant to the Hollywood studio system and to, and to movies. And it's, it's kind of sad to me, a lot of film education begins just in the 70s. And they sort of disregard, you know, they'll do some of the some of the bigger studio, The Wizard of Oz, things like that, Gone with the Wind. Sure. You know, they'll hit some of the high points of the glamour era, 
but they really do neglect a lot of the earlier stuff sometimes. And, and I think that's sad. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And these movies that, that are, are done like this, they do hold up incredibly well. I mean, the tonal shifts and like, while the, while the homeless people are keeping a lookout, we get one of the few laps in this movie where uh, the mm-hmm. guy who has a sign that says that he's blind lifts his glasses up to watch Beckert. But this total shift that happens, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> this total shift that happens where we see the madness come over Beckert as he's watching is made even more unsettling because we have that that one sh- like laugh right the, right before it, and that's such a modern swing, and it's genuinely scary when we see him like see this young girl in the window, and she's walking around without a care in the world, and we don't even see him. We just hear the whistling off screen and it gets louder and louder. And it's so yes. unnerving. Yes. Luckily, and I love things like that. Things that are suggestive and it substantiates the, the incredible importance of sound design and sound in horror. Uh, that's where you get your jump scares. That's where you get that little shiver down your spine. That's where the setup starts to happen. It's, it's one of the more chilling moments in the film. Yeah. Luckily for this little girl, her mother shows up and we finally get to see Lori and it really looks like he's transformed. Like he's he's sweaty and he's scratching at his hand compulsively. He looks like a totally different person. Really a remarkable yeah. performance. And one of the very first depictions of a sil- serial killer yeah. in movies. I mean, if you if you discount, like you said, Nosferatu, Dracula, which are monsters in a way, um, but he's a human monster, and you know he's hunting his prey, and that's yeah, contemporary, it really is. utterly contemporary, and and it's great. And this next moment is where we get the poster, which I really like the poster for this movie as well. One of the beggars chalks the letter M for the German word for murderer onto his palm then pretends to trip, and he leaves the mark on the back of his coat. It's really great imagery. It's very striking. It It really is. Yeah, and the poster for this is so great. It's just a black background with the hand with a a big red M on the hand, and it's it's so perfectly calls to mind this movie, and, and it's so the red against the black just sticks out so much. It's really great. And you know, red and black, to this day, those are the colors of war. Everybody wears the red and white and black t-shirt, a lot of art, you know, advertising, things like that. Yeah, it's very enduring. There was a still, a photo still of Peter Lorre's character of Beckert that the Nazis appropriated and used in its anti-Semitic propaganda. He was the evil Jew, the dirty Jew. And they replicated that image on posters as the Nazis came to power and started to formulate their final solution and started to create the ghettos throughout the territories they owned that they conquered. And that's also very telling because his name was Laszlo Lowenstein. He was a Hungarian Jew and his family settled in Berlin. And then as all everything began to deconstruct in Germany, that's when they made their escape. But I thought that was an interesting little bit of uh, trivia yeah, you know, definitely. from the film. He does such a great job of contorting his face. I mean, it sucks, but you're like, oh, wow, easy to understand why this sort of thing would go on a poster intended to scare people. He does this incredible performance where he presents so normally when he's be like just walking around and then to see him 
in this the throes of this murderous rage is is really incredible. And yeah, it's it's brilliant acting. He contorts his body. It's almost like he almost looks like he's going to become the hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it is utterly remarkable. And the acting of that era, I don't know, it just seems very effortless, but but vivid, very vivid. Definitely. And like, you know, his face, it was just, oh, my God, that's Definitely. the scary stuff. That's the stuff that sets me up. Definitely. And it's it's this threatening aura that he manages to conjure out of nowhere that makes these these scenes scary because there's, like you said, suggestive. So it's not necessarily that something is overtly threatening, but they're made threatening because of him. There's a, a scene coming mm-hmm. up where Beckert is talking to a little girl and he drops his knife and she just hands the knife back to him. And I'm like, oh, my yeah. God, what are you doing? <laughs> So trusting. Well, part of it is he has a childlike appearance. He isn't an intimidating, tall, scary, parental looking figure or an authority figure. He looks like a child himself. The criminals find Beckert now that they have this M on him and they abscond with him to an abandoned distillery with the police hot on their trail. The scene where they're in the distillery and you see the panning shot of the jury is so good it's so modern i know that i've said that it holds up like crazy and that this movie is so good but man like so much of this could easily be just transposed over to a 2019 movie and you'd be like yeah i believe that this is the sort of shot that would be in it and it's it's really great Absolutely. Uh, get a uh, duly appointed lawyer uh which you know you got to respect that these, uh, these criminals are like yeah you still you still get a, a lawyer He argues his case that he can't control himself and that the fact that he is compelled to do this makes him less criminal than those who would stand in judgment of him. Exactly. He presents himself as being in the grip of a disease. He's a victim of a disease. He presents that that you'll find in any jail, any prison system anywhere in the world. Absolutely. And his desperation at this point is palpable. I mean, the lighting is perfect for it as he's like slouched on the ground and, and it's these harsh shadows. And he demands to be turned over to the police saying that nobody knows what it's like to be him. And his lawyer agrees right. saying that nobody has the right to kill a man who's not responsible for his deeds, not the state and not you. Pointing out that the man leading the trial is, in fact, wanted on three counts of manslaughter himself. So, you know, nobody's perfect, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) It's reminiscent of the French Revolution Mm -hmm. when they would have those those crazy trials and then like send people to the guillotine. It's very much in the same vein. But it's such an effective argument. He becomes a sympathetic figure. You can, I, I could, I could feel myself understanding him. You know, he's, he's Mm -hmm. crazy. He's insane. He's criminally insane. He can't be held responsible. We've seen him do this killing and still, I agree, you do feel sympathy for him. You say, is it possible that he's tried to stop and like and like he said, he just physically is unable to. And it's a very timely issue. I mean, revolving door prisons are a huge issue right now, as is the idea of actual treatment versus punishment for, for criminals who, and people who are in jail. But the criminals who are uh, holding this trial are sure that since he presents as a normal person when he's not in the middle of killing, he'll get out of jail and he'll just kill again, especially if it is a compulsion and not a choice. So better to just kill him now 
and be over with it. And so this kind of full perspective of, you know, if, if it's a compulsion, then there's no way to, to treat it. And he's not responsible for it. Having to mull those over such a, an interesting theme that is still incredibly relevant in 2020. Entirely within criminal law, anyone will tell you child molesters, child sexual deviants have the highest recidivism rate of any other criminal class. And they have actually, prison systems have actually gun, begun trying to institute criminal uh, uh, chemical castration, support groups, because these people will be let back out unless you execute them. It's an argument that has been made. So, you know, we've been dealing with the nature of this problem, you know, since humankind has existed. The thing that's so interesting about the movie that makes it so contemporary is there is evil within all of us. If we wish to indulge our most base inclinations and instinct, you know, society is, is chaos and it's, it's murderous all the time. It's that war between good and evil. I've mentioned it many times. Only the horror genre really does take on that war between good and evil within ourselves. And it's something that makes it stand out as, as a genre. You know, it's those unique things make it so interesting. And I think that is why there's so much criticism, not as like, oh, I think this is bad criticism, as in like film criticism about horror, because it does take on these interesting dynamics and arguments and it allows for a little bit more exploration than, than some of the other genres that are a little bit more shallow, perhaps. Exactly. It's an honest dissection of good and evil and that, that ongoing uh, war between good and evil. And just because horror can sometimes treat that in a more cartoony, obvious, extreme, caricatured way doesn't mean at the opposite end of the spectrum, such as the movie M, that it can't be treated with a lot more nuance and in a much more artistic way. And it does do exactly that. I mean, the mob closes in on him, ready to kill him, but the police arrive to arrest both him and the criminals. And we cut to his real trial. And there are a bunch of judges mm -hmm. delivering judgment. But Elsie Beckman's mother is crying in the audience and says that no sentence will bring the dead children back. The end. <laughs> exactly. And you only come back to the essential human element of the crime when the mothers make their case. I mean, quite literally, they're not on the witness stand necessarily, but they make their case. They're, they're there in the courtroom. And that's what brings the movie back to its origins, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a perfect it, in so many ways. It's such a one. It's such a perfect movie for me in that respect. I think that there's a lot of really interesting thematic analysis in it. I mean, there's a really great emphasis on reflections and what we see on the surface versus what's underneath, as well as what just kind of strikes me as just general disdain, you know, for for people. It, there's a lot of people sneering and making ugly faces and being prone to violence and self interest. And it has this kind of cynical uh, look at humanity that I think is really interesting. And, and like you said, kind of explores that good versus evil. Now, we've kind of talked about what makes this movie so great as we've gone through. But we've reached the point of the show now, Caroline, where we sum up what makes this movie the best horror movie ever made. So why don't you go ahead and start us <laughs> I have a tough time with best things with number one and, and things like that, because my interests are pretty broad and varied. 
It's just for me, the emotional, just a visceral resonance that this movie will always have for me. They don't show it that often. So, and, and, and it's very hard to find even on Amazon and Netflix. I mean, every once in a while it's there, then it isn't. I just find it so instructive if you're a film student or if you simply want to engage your emotions at the, at the rawest and deepest level. That's the reason. It's always had that kind of resonance for me. Uh, and, and plus, I feel like Fritz Lang, in many ways, he was very like Hitchcock. He was simply a German version. Yeah, I mean, Hitchcock, Hitchcock, just had a- Hitchcock went to Germany and learned a lot. And he came back and said that he felt like he had a very German expressionist technique uh, in his film. So I, I definitely see that a lot. Very much that style of sensibility from him. And you see it as it, at, at its absolute developmental peak with Psycho, I believe. You know, I can just feel the continuum of time. And because I have been around for a while and because I have been an informal student to film, I can feel that sense of belonging to a genre that is unafraid to explore controversial and taboo themes. And I enjoy being a part of that. I enjoy watching. I I consider Fritz Lang to be a part of my film family in the same way I do Toby Hooper, in the same way I do Hitchcock, in the same way I do uh, Michael Curtiz, in the same way that I do Gray and Nicholas Rogue and Paul Verhoeven and, you know, so many great, great, great filmmakers that I have embraced and whose work resonates with me. I see it along a continuum. And that's the reason M continues to reverberate for me. And whenever I see it listed that it's going to be on or it's available, I watch it. I totally agree with, with that. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it's at such a pivotal moment in film history. And it Mm-hmm. It, its influence is so huge, not only for literally creating genres that persist to this day, like police procedurals, not only for its influence on a film genre that I love in in film noir, but also just in the fact that it is a awesome movie for a horror movie. It is scary. The performances are great. A lot of the camera work holds up today. And I mean, the fact that it's black and white and there's this emphasis on the lighting that's lost a lot today is really just so powerful to me. And uh, the fact that you put all that on top of this great directing and story that asks you to examine your preconceived notions about what criminals are like and, and how we treat criminals in terms of putting them in jail or, uh, you know, or killing them, I think is timeless. It's a timeless story and, and it's really incredibly done. Caroline, mm-hmm. this was so much fun. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show. And we've reached now the point where you get to plug anything that you want. So go ahead and tell the people what they can check out. You, I thank you so, so very much. I love talking about film. I love talking about movies. Movies and music are my passion. That's how I transcend my regular existence and catapult myself into an extraordinary existence. I love the movies that I have coming up for the very first time in years. I think since about 2015, I have four movies coming out this year. On the 25th of this month, a remarkable, very stylish, very savvy film called Greenlight, directed by Graham Denman will be out on VOD and all platforms. Be looking for that. I have another movie beginning its festival run, 10 Minutes to Midnight, by the extraordinary Bloomquist Brothers, where I play a DJ once again. And I think uh, a lot of people are going to enjoy that film. 
I've also got another small film, a little grindhouse creation by an exciting young director named Ricky Bird out of Bakersfield, California. It's called Killer Rose. Uh, I play a character named Becky Cross. It's gritty. I'm covered with tattoos. And I had the time of my life creating that character. It's a very different image than most people are accustomed to seeing me play. And a remarkable short proof of concept called Pieces of Me by an incredible find. She is a find, Julia Max. One of the only three female, she's now the third female director that I've worked for in my entire career. Uh, Pieces of Me is uh, a remarkable short story. It's got all the stuff horror film uh, lovers love, and I had a great time making it. We're going to see if we can go to the long form, hopefully soon. But those are my big four brags that I've got coming out so far. I'm also working on producing my first film. I can't say much about it because we are still in the planning stages. But I do have an interested financier. I'm hoping I can deliver good news on that very soon. Well, that's awesome. I mean, definitely people check out Greenlight. I got a chance to see it, and it's really fantastic. I definitely want people to go check it out and support independent movies like that. And I'll definitely be keeping an eye out for those other ones coming up. Um, and congrats on the on the move to producer. That's a, a big, exciting news. It's it's the first time I've ever had to do anything like this, and I've noticed there's really a natural progression. I was I was really stunned at how much I actually know. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, as far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at GerbHeft. You can find the show's Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We have merch. Basically, if you go Twitter and you connect with us there, you'll be able to navigate to all the other places. So definitely look for us on there. Caroline, thank you so much again for coming on. This was really fantastic. And good luck with the, with the rest of your movies coming out this year. Thank you. Can I also give people my Twitter and Instagram, which are basically the same? Absolutely. At Willie Caroline, W-I-L-L-I-C-A-R-O-L-I-N-E. My website is carolinewilliamsactress.com. I do have a store at my website. Feel free to jump on and, and wander around. And uh, thank you so very much for having me as a guest today. I enjoyed it so, so much. Absolutely. My pleasure, Caroline. Bye, everyone.